0: Continuing in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, tonight we are in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and Frankie or Lee will pass one out to you. And if you need a note, take paper and pencils, hopefully that's coming around as well. So, we like to teach the Bible when we're here because we believe that we're not just reading some kind of ancient book and this is not about like going to school and like having a history lesson. We believe that there's a real God who created us and loves each and every one of you. And by learning more about God, there's actually, you are learning a little bit more about yourself in the process without even trying. And you're discovering like why you're put on earth in the first place. And,. You enter into a relationship that you never know that you even needed. Which is also really fun. So, Matthew chapter six, verses seven through fifteen. If you like titling totally message messages, tonight's message is effective prayer. Effective prayer. I really believe that this message tonight is so important that it has the capability of completely transforming the way that you view your relationship with God. That's how important this message is, okay? So if you're not a person who typically takes notes, maybe you want to try tonight because you'll never know if the message that you hear tonight might be the message you need next week or you may need to look back in the future, look back in the future, looking back on the notes and what God spoke to you this evening. Don't dismiss it, okay? Zone in, pay attention, and let's see what the Lord does. Verse seven, Jesus says, and when you pray... Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening once again, knowing that you have the power to transform hearts, our lives can change their course, all by the power of your word. You created the universe out of nothing by your voice uttering, let there be light. And so we pray that you would shine light into the darkness of our hearts today. Help us to see your beauty and enter into a relationship with you with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it look like typically when you pray? When you pray, is it often before meals? Like the majority of the time that you pray, is it a before or after meal prayer? Is it before or after bedtime? Is your prayer life typically short, intermittent prayers throughout the day? Is it long prayers? Have you spent in your life, has there ever been a time that you prayed for more than 15 minutes straight? Has there ever been a time in your life you prayed for an hour long? What does your prayer life look like? Do you often pray when things are hard? Or do you equally pray when things are good? It's easy to pray when we're going through suffering because we're crying out to the Lord. But when things seem to be going well, do we pray just as much? Also, what types of prayers do you lift up? are your prayers always a request or is it often praise, thanksgiving, maybe a request not just for yourself but for others? Because here's the thing. It's important to take an inventory of your prayer life because of this. How you pray reveals what you believe about God. How you pray reveals what you believe about God. So my computers, both of them, I have a laptop and I have a desktop. My desktop I bought mainly to write music. And so I try to, like, trick it out. I bought a PC. I know you guys are Mac people, but I bought a PC because it's a lot cheaper to kind of, like, deck it out and make it ready to make some music. However, there's some kind of weird Windows update thing, and so it's just completely frying my computer every time it does this mandatory update. And I'm losing information. Right now I send it to the Geek Squad or whatever. But here's the thing. Growing up in my house with my dad, who's very tech savvy, anytime I've ever had a problem with my computer, whether it was Windows 95, ladies and gentlemen, whatever it was, whenever I hit a problem with my computers, I knew exactly what to do. I would tell my dad that my computer was broken, it's not working, and I would ask for him to later on to look at it so he can fix it. I had complete confidence That my dad this past week would be able to look at my computer diagnose it and tell me exactly what the next step is It's nothing more frustrating than trying to fix your computer when you have no idea what the problem is But you see it's not just this past week. that I asked my dad to look at my computer. I've been doing that my entire life Why? Because what I believe about my dad is that he's very capable to fix computers and he's very tech savvy now If you believe that God is sovereign over all creation, that God created the entire universe, that God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, should it not make sense for us to bring our every need and our every request to him first before everybody else? Usually, when we run into problems, you walk to, you go to the person or you text the person that you believe is most capable of solving your problem. So if it's a relationship problem, maybe you talk to your parents, maybe you talk to your friends, but you talk to somebody who you believe will be able to help you through a situation. So how you pray reveals what you believe about God. Now, here's the thing. I believe the number one reason why people don't pray is this. We don't pray because we don't actually believe that prayer is effective. So you can see that in this passage, as the disciples are being taught by Jesus Christ on how to pray, we also can learn to pray effectively. So that is our basic outline for the evening. We're gonna talk about ineffective prayer, talk about effective prayer, and then this template that Jesus gives his disciples on how to pray. So first of all, let's talk about ineffective prayer. And that's found in verse seven. Jesus says, and when you pray, he doesn't say if you pray, he assumes that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that you will pray. And then he says this, do not use vain repetitions or meaningless ways of just saying the same thing over and over again as the heathen or the pagans do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Here's the first way that uh, our prayers could be ineffective. The types of prayers that are ineffective are prayers that are hindered by unconfessed sin. Prayers that are hindered by unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin hinders fellowship with God. This is the idea behind the heathen, the pagan, the person who has no prior relationship to God, sees God as a cosmic vending machine, a genie who will give him whatever he desires. But if we have not confessed our sin before the Lord, then this is what the Bible says in Psalm 66, verses 16 through 20. David says, come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love from me. Also in John chapter 9, verse 31, we read that. It says, now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. We see time and time again there are instances in which people thought they were in the will of God, and because there was unconfessed sin, Achan, when, they, when the people of Israel were in the book of Joshua trying to take over this little city called Ai, there was a guy named Achan who had unconfessed sin. The sin in the camp prevented them from experiencing the victory in Jesus. And so it may be for us as well. If there's unconfessed sin in our life, it can hinder the fellowship of, that we have with God. So the question then is, does this mean that literally God is not able to hear what non-believers pray? That's the question I always had growing up. So does that mean if the Bible says, the Lord will not, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. Does that mean that God literally can't hear it? It's like there's a mute button on the sinner and just sees them like just mouthing the words, you know? No, I don't believe so. Number one, God is omniscient, which means that he knows all things, and the Bible talks about that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Rain in the Bible was a symbol of provision, and so God provides for both believers and unbelievers. Sometimes, just because God's merciful, he chooses to bless even bad people. They are unrepentant that want nothing to do with him, but here's the thing. Even though God will be merciful and gracious and even bless and even answer the prayers of some unbelieving people, here's the thing. God will always accomplish his perfect will and if the totality of our life is in opposition to his will, why would he grant our requests? God's will will always be accomplished. He's God. He's not gonna let a couple human beings get in the way of what he wants to do. But, If he's gonna accomplish his perfect will and our our prayers themselves are in opposition of what he wants to accomplish, why would he wanna listen to us? If the totality of our life is in opposition to him, then why would he grant our requests? Imagine Pharaoh praying to God, the God of Israel, in uh, the book of Exodus, and he's praying, Lord God of the Hebrews, I pray that you don't take my people away from me and lead them out of Egypt. I pray that you don't do that. Why would God listen? No, I got, I be, I got bigger plans. Definitely not doing that. Imagine Judas praying that Jesus doesn't realize that he will betray, betray him. Hey God, I know like I'm really trying to, you know, steal money from, you know, uh, the whatever, the offering basket. I'm trying to cheat everybody. I'm trying to betray Jesus. Do you mind if I just kind of do it under the car- cover of darkness and I'm not found out? Why would he do that? So, Here's the thing for the Christian. Maybe you're a Christian, but there's unconfessed sin in your life and it's hindering your fellowship with God. How can we pray according to the will of God if we ignore the very Spirit who aids our prayers? That doesn't really make any sense, does it? The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. I've often referred to this as, it's almost like spiritual autocorrect. Like you pray whatever it is that you want. Lord, I pray that you help so-and-so Susie to like me. You know, I use Susie because no one's named Susan, hopefully, here. If you are, it's kind of awkward. And you pray that, right? And as you pray that, you're really hoping that that's the outcome. And then the Holy Spirit's like, "Ah, not Susie, but I'm going to pray that you get married because, like, I believe that's the right thing for you at this time, or whatever. He autocorrects our prayers, but if we're constantly rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, which can be to convict us of sin, why would he suddenly be okay with answering those other prayers? We actually see in the New Testament that if husbands are in opposition with their wives and have not reconciled, that their prayers could actually be hindered. So this is the sense of verse 14 through 15 when it says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That is not talking about salvation, by the way. That would be terrifying because then every day you have to do an inventory. I'm like, did I forgive everybody? If not, then I'm, obviously I'm not gonna be forgiven. That's not the sense. It's about fellowship with God. Now that we're believers, we're disciples of Jesus, those of us that have professed his name, that have asked him to forgive us of our sin, those of us that are followers of Jesus, if we do not forgive people what they've done to us, God won't forgive us in terms of fellowship and walking with him. So imagine as a child, I guess not as a child, let's let's bring it up to your age. Imagine as a teenager that you really, really, really need a ride down to whatever, Point Pleasant to hang out with your friends and you don't have a license and you're begging your parents, please, 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 but you know that you did something terrible to your parents earlier that day and your parents are waiting for you to apologize. you are like, I will never say I'm sorry. And then five minutes later are like, oh, by the way, can I have a ride to Point Pleasant? No! You can definitely, not until you apologize. No way! Does that mean that if you don't apologize that your parents don't love you? No, they still love you, but Part of being a loving parent means that you are prioritizing their heart over what they want at the moment. It's the same thing with our Heavenly Father. Because He loves us, He doesn't want us to walk one more minute in unconfessed sin. So sometimes God lovingly removes that fellowship to show us that there is something wrong. Maybe you feel like you're praying and nothing happens. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time that you confessed to God? Have you thought about that? I prayed and God didn't answer my prayers. Well, when's the last time you prayed like the psalmist, Lord, search me and know me. Try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And instead, lead me into the way of everlasting life. When's the last time you prayed that? Because I'll tell you, like, that's the prayer that God will always answer. If you ask God, hey, Lord, I just want to know if I've sinned against anyone or against you today. I pray that you show me. He will never be like, oh, yeah, no, you're fine. Like, I don't want to make it awkward and tell you about your sin, so I'm not going to tell you. He will always be faithful through his Holy Spirit to reveal that sin in our life. But then once it's come to the surface, we need to confess it, repent of that sin, so we can have that restored fellowship with our Lord and Savior. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus tonight, it's important that you get right with God. Why not? If you are a person who's just always thinking about getting your way, listen, if you follow whatever your heart desires, naturally it's gonna always lead to you feeling empty. It's just the way it is. We don't know what's good for us. We don't know what we want. One day you like this person, the next day you like somebody else. One day you want this, the next day you don't like like that thing anymore. Like think about like every childhood dream being fulfilled, like every toy in the toy store, right? And then like imagine that satisfying you for the rest of your adult life. It just doesn't work. But that's how we think in our conception as human beings. But God has infinite joy in his resources that we don't even know about until we grow in him and we find our identity in him. So that's the first way that we can have ineffective prayer, unconfessed sin. Second is prayer that tries to manipulate God. The second half of verse seven says, for they think that they will be heard for what? Their righteous living? No, for their many words. Now, all of us know how to do this really well, right? Especially when you're a teenager. You know if you want something from your parents, there is a certain strategy by which you go about it. You ask dad or you ask mom or you, you say something to kind of lead them and then you're like asking them when it's a good time. If they're in a bad mood, you don't ask them. You have perfect strategies to make sure that you can accomplish whatever it is that your heart desires. But this is not the way that we can act with God. He can never be manipulated. No matter how clever you think you are, God can always call you out. I have have the perfect idea of what it is that you want, and you're not getting your way. But this is kind of the mentality that heathens, pagans, people that don't worship the one true God, this is the mentality that they have because that's the only relationship they know of, is that if you do something for me, I'll do something for you. So therefore, I'm going to be on my best behavior. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we have the Battle of Mount Carmel, and Elijah the prophet was representing the God of Israel, and then you had the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal, in order to get what they wanted, they had to cut themselves, cry out to Baal, Show that they're really sincere, that they really mean it. And then Elijah, all he did was pray and like, Lord, just show show me your glory. Show that you're the one true God. And fire came down from heaven. That's the kind of relationship that we can have with God. But people of the world believe that there's always something I have to do in order to attain God's favor, to make God pay attention. That's why Elijah mocked them and said, hey, maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe you should shout louder. Maybe he's in the bathroom. You never know. But we can come before him as just the children of God asking our Heavenly Father for our requests. Now, in Greek, in in the society they were in, in Greek times, their prayers were always about piling titles of their deities that if you just say the right thing, it's almost like a magic ritual in order to accomplish what it is that you need, an incantation. Now, I'm not going to, um, I'll be less specific about this because I don't want to necessarily offend people who have this background, but there is a certain mentality that in order to get what you need from the Lord, that you don't directly pray to God, you pray to other Christians. You pray to historic Christians, and by doing that, you're able to really be able to talk to the one saint who who uh, is over this one area or this other saint for healing or whatever, But that itself is not biblical, that we can come before God because we are his children. Now, whenever it is that we are trying to manipulate God, we are doing what James four says we should not do. James four one says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your own desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says, here's the key verse, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. John Stott is a pastor who once said, the purpose of prayer is emphatically not to bend God's will to ours, but rather to align our will to his. Now, how do we commonly judge whether or not our prayers are effective? When we think about effective prayer, how do we tell whether or not our prayers are effective? We usually judge it by whether or not we get what we want. God did not answer me. Why? How do you know that? Because I didn't get what I asked for. What if he said no? What if he said maybe? What if he said not yet? Those are all possible answers, right? It's completely arrogant to think the reason why God's not listening to me, or the the reason to think that God is not answering my prayers simply because he didn't say yes. So now that we talked about ineffective prayer, let's talk about what effective prayer looks like. Look at verse eight. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Isn't that amazing? That even before we come to God who is all-knowing, He knows all the facts of the universe with Him. So here are the two aspects of effective prayer. Number one, approaching God as Father. Approaching God as Father. So you are sons and daughters of the one true God. And He knows your needs like a father knows his children's needs. So let me repeat the question I asked in the very beginning. If how you pray reveals what you believe about God, how do you pray? What is the way that you approach God? Is he your heavenly father? Or is he a distant cosmic king? Is he your buddy? How do you approach God and how do you pray? Now, I'm not mocking the people that do this, okay? But I will say, but, so I guess I kind of am. I'm not, I'm trying not to. There are some people that can be so flippant with the way that they approach God, and to me, that's, that's disrespectful, right? So we don't just go into prayer circle and go, Daddy, like maybe. But for me, it's a little weird because when I'm at home, maybe it's just me. When I'm at home or I'm like my dad's around the church, I don't call him Daddy when I'm at church, like other people around. Just kind of weird. I'm a grown man, right? Just don't do that. Maybe you do. Maybe it's easier for girls. I don't know. All I'm saying is, yes, God is your father, but he's also God. So there needs to be that mix of reverence and also at the same time, I have a relationship with him. So approach God as your heavenly father, which means that he cares for you. He loves you. He wants to spend time with you, which is a crazy concept. And then number two, effective prayer is praying according to God's will. So approaching God as Father and praying according to God's will. First John chapter 5, verse 14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. So we have confidence. So the only contingency, that's a big word, the only factor between whether or not God answers your prayers is whether or not you're asking in accordance to his nature, to his perfect will, which is actually what you want. There's a pastor, or actually, I don't think he's a pastor. There's a philosopher named Dallas Willard, but he's also a theologian, and he had this great comment on prayer. He says, well, prayer is essentially request, right? He talks about how prayer is talking to God about what you're doing together, which I think is a great definition. Um, But he talks about, Listen, since prayer is a request, think about the power in requests, okay? Those of you that are ladies here know that requests can be so powerful that you may even avoid school and youth group if you know someone's gonna ask you out to prom. People will avoid awkward situations just because someone they know is gonna ask them something they don't wanna be asked about. You can always say no, right? But there's something in asking somebody that actually has the power to influence somebody to make a decision. So think about how powerful prayer is. Oftentimes, you look at prayer as like, well, it's a last resort, let's see what we can do, but I guess all we can do is pray. But actually, power has some of the greatest causal uh, abilities out of anything you could possibly do. Think about it this way. Dallas Willard says, if prayer was not contingent on God's will, prayer would destroy us. If the only thing that keeps our prayers from being answered is whether or not it's according to God's will, imagine if you prayed, and it didn't have to be according to God's will, and you got always what you wanted. This world would be complete chaos. We'd all be destroyed. So what's comforting to know is that God will supply all of our needs, but not necessarily all of our wants. And that's a great and healthy thing to know that God has your best interest in mind, and also he's thinking about the entire universe. So we are called to ask and have confidence that if our answer is no, that's okay. Because we can trust God, who's working all things together for good. But I would say this, this means don't judge whether or not your prayer is effective based on whether or not you see immediate results. The Bible talks about, in Luke chapter 18, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That we are to continually ask, continually knock, to ask the Lord to hear us, to bring our desires before him. He wants to hear from you. So don't just pray one and done, just like, well, God knows my needs, so I'm just gonna pray and that's it. But he wants us to continually petition him. Listen, the battle that we are waging is not against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, uh, terrible things in this world that are conspiring to destroy you. And God wants to hear you and wants to hear me call out to him so that he can accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. So what happens following in verse 9 through the rest of the section here is that Jesus gives a template for what effective prayer looks like. Now, this is funny because so many people throughout history have taken this one prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which, by the way, should be the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's Prayer, because even in this prayer, Jesus says, forgive us our debts, but he has no debts, right? He's given a template for us, but people make this into a meaningless, repetitive, vain ritual. The very thing that Jesus just said, don't do that, and then people take this like, oh, okay. Jesus just prayed this prayer, so I'm going to pray that prayer time and time again, which is also interesting because I don't think people really pray John 7, which is another prayer that Jesus prayed, the high priestly prayer. But anyway, it's besides the point. This is a template. That's why he says, in this manner, in verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. So he gives us this outline. It's God's will, our needs, and then his glory. That's what we're gonna talk about. So first of all, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So once again, he says, our Father. You see, the reason why we take communion together, which actually we need to think about probably doing in this room, but we do on weekends. The reason why we take communion, remembering the Lord's death and resurrection, his death on the cross, his blood shed for us, and we do that not in isolation, but together together, it's to remind ourselves that we are all one body, no matter what you look like, what your abilities are, your talents, whatever, it doesn't matter. We are all the church, and we are all family. So it's our Father in heaven, but not in a distant cosmic heaven which, like, is out there in the galaxies. But the sense here is our Father who is always near us. See, because heaven is also a different dimension. It's not necessarily a different spatial location. But we believe in a God who's omnipresent, don't we? That he's here in this room. And so we ask for God to be here to fill us with his Holy Spirit. But the whole sense is he's transcendent, he's beyond us, yet he's also near us. And so that's why we start off by glorifying his name. So that's a good thing to do is when we pray, to start off by remembering that our God is in heaven. He's beyond us, beyond our circumstances, beyond our problems. And therefore he's to be worshiped. And then for his will to be done, his kingdom to come. Because although he's here, we look around in the room and we know that there's hurting people, there's brokenness, suffering and sin, people in rebellion towards God. And we're asking for his kingdom to come in its fullness and his will to be done. Secondly, it says in verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I love how he says, Give us this day our daily bread. Pastor Lloyd, uh, I don't remember when it was, maybe this past weekend, he said something like, God will never give you tomorrow's strength for today. He will always give you today's strength for today. And so, what does that mean? Tomorrow, you have to depend on the Lord again. The people of Israel, when they're wandering through the wilderness, They were given a daily provision of manna, bread from heaven, but that bread couldn't be carried over to the next day until it was the Sabbath, and then they weren't supposed to work. When they did, they would store it up. It would just breed worms. Symbolic of every day we need to be dependent on the Lord. Now, I'm gonna be quoting Dallas Willard again. This book was amazing, okay? So he had this illustration I thought was great. When a parent is feeding his little kids, do you ever see those little kids, like five, six years old, hoarding up their breakfast and, like, putting in little bags? And, like, what are you doing? And, like, well, we don't know. Like, maybe our parents are going to feed us tomorrow. You just never know, right? The kids will be utterly helpless if their parents fail to feed them the next day. Yet they're not worried about it. They're confident that every single day their parents are going to give them exactly what they need for the day. And so it is for us to, to be de- uh, daily depending on the Lord in such a way that we're we're like, "Well, Lord, if you don't come through tomorrow, I'm not going to be able to sustain myself." Which also means that we are daily what? Forgiving our debtors and asking for forgiveness. Something I was thinking about in a recent pastors conference I went to is so many times when we think about confessing sin, we think about the big sins. And so you might have guilt over something that you did that was really stupid and you're just having a hard time just letting that go. And you bring it before the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. And you're just always like, you just can't rid yourself of that guilty feeling, right? But here's the thing. Sometimes we're so fixated on the big sins that we miss out on the small sins that we still need that daily cleansing. And if we don't have that daily cleansing of even the small things, those small things become big things. So it's all bad, and we need to daily, be, Uh, coming be coming be going before the lord and asking lord and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one now that's a curious verse right like what does that mean do not lead us into temptation well the sense here according to craig keener who's a commentator is more so let us not sin when we are tested So the Bible talks about in James that God doesn't tempt anybody. He's not tricking you. He's not like, ha-ha. He's not like trying to get you are like a fish and then there's like bait and God has the pole and he's like, all right, I'm gonna get him this time. That's not God. That's Satan, if anything. But the sense is when we are tested, don't let us sin. Because you see, God uses the testing in our life, the temptations in our life to be able to hone us, to be able to strengthen us, so that we have a fortitude that's able to face whatever's ahead. God uses the trials to develop his followers. So if you're going through a trial, here's the good news, that there's no circumstance you endure in this life that God cannot give you the daily provision and strength for. That's why James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you enter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or fortitude, that strength. So we have daily provision, daily cleansing, and daily strength that we need from the Lord. And then finally, it says, Do not lead us, uh, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Ultimately, we're closing with his glory, right? So we start off God's will. We want to focus not on just what we want to accomplish, but first of all, God, what do you want to do? Then our needs. And then ending by just remembering this all for his glory. It's not about what we want. It's about what he wants because that's bare for us anyway. So in conclusion, I want to uh, draw your attention to Exodus chapter 33 and we'll close with this. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 33. Here's a passage where Moses is having a conversation with God. And this is the kind of relationship I want with God, by the way. Verse 11. It says, So the Lord, in Exodus 33, verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Isn't that crazy? Like, that's probably ridiculous to any person who is a Jewish person in those days. God was somebody to be feared and revered. And here, God spoke to Moses as his friend. That's why they highly regarded Moses in all of Judaism. And he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Actually, this is a good note too. Just remember this. So all throughout the Old Testament, do you realize that although it refers to God as being a heavenly father, there's not one instance where an individual calls God father in the entire Old Testament. Jesus is the first person. Really interesting, okay. Verse 12, then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know, know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way, and I may know you, and that I may f- find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory then he said i will make my goodness all my goodness pass before you and i will proclaim the name of the lord before you i will be gracious to whom i will be gracious and i will have compassion on whom i will have compassion but he said you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live and the lord said here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock so it shall be when while my glory passes by that i will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while i pass by then i will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen so here Moses is having this conversation with God. I think it's a good lesson for every one of us to remember ultimately when we pray, we're asking God this one request, show me your glory. When God is telling Moses and the people of Israel, yeah, I want you just go ahead, do what you gotta do, but Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't wanna go. Do you have that kind of thought Do you have those kinds of requests? Lord, here are the things that I want, but Lord, if you're not in it, I don't want it. If you don't go with me, I don't want to be there. Lord, I'm praying for a good job. I'm praying to get into a good school. I'm praying for all these things, but Lord, if you will not be with me as I go, I don't want to go. We should primarily always be thinking of our relationship with our Heavenly Father because it's in that.